and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On June 15, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a trio of cases that it was against the law to fire people for being LGBT. And, of course, on November 4th of the very same year, the Supreme Court heard another case where private agencies, like adoption agencies, were asking for the constitutional right to turn away LGBT people and same-sex couples based on religious convictions. It may seem like a very fast timeline, but actually, the road from Bostock v. Clayton County, which established that LGBT people are protected from discrimination under federal law, to Fulton v. Philly, which is before the Supreme Court now, was actually long and hard fought. I am very excited to have as my guest today James Essex. James is the director of the ACLU's LGBT Rights and HIV Project, and he's going to help us take a look at this pathway and foreshadow what is going to happen when the Supreme Court issues a decision which could come any day now. Let's dig in. James Essex is the director of the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project. James was counsel in Bostock v. Clayton County, which established that LGBT people are protected from discrimination under federal law. He is also counsel in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, which is before the Supreme Court. That is the case that could allow taxpayer-funded agencies to deny services to LGBTQ families. James, I'm so excited to talk with you today about these two consequential Supreme Court cases and sort of map the journey from Bostock and its impact to the Supreme Court's decision to take up Fulton v. City of uh, Philadelphia and how that ruling could affect LGBT rights going forward. It's a very, it feels like a very short time span, but there was a lot of work getting to that point and then there's a lot to come. Um, so this is gonna be an exciting opportunity to chat. Thanks for inviting me and for um, uh, teeing up this set of issues. So before we dig into the issues, I'm wondering, you've been at the director of the ACLU's LGBT and HIV project since 2010. Um, are, are there particular ways that you think, like standing back, that this work has stayed the same or changed in any dramatic ways? Yeah, well, so look, we've obviously, I mean, just like I think the, this, this audience will know this very well, we've been on a winning streak, right? We've just made an amazing amount of progress as a community, you know, some of it through litigation, but also through other uh, means, through legislation, and also just the cultural change in the country has been incredible. And um, the the I think we're in the midst of um, a bit of a change in the following sense, as we'll hear, um, as, 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 we, as we'll talk about as we go forward here, um, we're likely to start losing more um, uh, in the courts. And that's a result of primarily of the change in the, in the composition of the United States Supreme Court. And um, uh, to some extent, um, and this, this is stuff we're just gonna see a little bit more going forward, a change in the, um, the sort of the personnel of the federal judiciary uh, uh, because of the, the appointments made by the Trump administration. And I think that that's gonna start showing up in uh, cases, especially around the religious exemptions issue. But Bostock is actually a great example of the fact that even with a profoundly conservative court, 
we can win um, and we will continue. So, I'm not, so we will continue to have wins like that, like Bostock, um, but there are gonna be other things that are gonna be harder for us, just, just being real about what's ahead of us. That's a good way to tee up this conversation and a sobering uh, kind of assessment of, of where we're starting here. Um, because yes, it does feel like with the marriage litigation and then even dodging somewhat of a bullet with the a masterpiece ruling, um, it does feel mm -hmm. like uh, we're on a on an upward trajectory. I gave listeners just a tiny little taste of Bostock and Philly and what they were about. Um, do you want to describe in your own words at the most basic level what these two cases are about and why we might talk about them in the same conversation? Sure. So, look, Bostock, uh, let me start here. The, the LGBTQ community has been trying to get uh, non-discrimination protections in all civil rights contexts, in employment and housing and public accommodations, which means businesses open to the public, um, education, et cetera, for decades. And we've been uh, collectively pursuing two different strategies, one legislative and the other through litigation. And the litigation strategy, I think, has been less well known, but the legislative one, the, the, the first Equality Act, which would have added, at that point, sexual orientation into the Federal Civil Rights Act, was introduced in either 73 or 74. Um, and promptly went nowhere. Uh, and we still have an Equality Act that's now much expanded, uh, pending, uh, it's passed the House and it's pending in, 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 in the Senate and we'll see if we can move that through. But so that's a, been a strategy that our community has been pursuing for a long time, get civil rights protections through the legislature. But we've also in, in sort of more under the radar been pursuing a, a strategy of saying, well, you know what, there are already bans on sex discrimination in the federal civil rights laws. And that happened since the, uh, the, the act was passed in 64. And the question is, well, is anti-LGBT discrimination a form of sex discrimination that you can sue under, under the existing federal civil rights law? And so that was the question that was posed in the three separate cases that were combined before the Supreme Court into the Bostock uh, what became the Postdoc ruling. And the court there says, you know what? Yes, um, if you fire somebody because they're trans, um, you necessarily take their sex into account. And same thing with sexual orientation. You fire a gay guy because he's gay. Uh, that means you're firing uh, this man because he forms intimate relationships with, with men. You're uh, you're taking someone's sex into account, but that—that's a very simple, uh, you know, proposition. Uh, it was, uh, and it's a very conservative proposition, in the sense that the court. Uh, th this was Justice Gorsuch writing for the court, who is a very, um, uh, you know, not a not a lefty, not a liberal, not usually a friend of LGBTQ folks. Um, but in this context, he's like, look, um, I, I practice a, a, a form of, of a statutory interpretation called uh, textualism. And it's like, OK, it's just a question of what does the word mean? And he came to the conclusion and uh, uh, five other justices joined him saying, when you fire someone because they're LGBT, you're taking their sex into account. And therefore, the civil rights law covers you and protects you. That's a profound change in terms of getting civil rights protections for LGBTQ people. We believe that Bostox is just in the employment context in terms of exactly what the case was about. We believe there's no way that it doesn't actually apply in every federal, to every federal civil rights law that bars sex discrimination. And so that means education and healthcare and uh, 
credit and housing and jury service, at least. And Justice um, uh, Alito has a, 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 an appendix to his dissent in the case that lists several hundred different provisions in federal law that also bar sex discrimination. And we read that and said, well, thank you very much, Justice Alito. Yes, we believe that every one of those situations is a situation and every one of those laws is a law that now bars um, anti-LGBTQ discrimination. Great. Can you now talk a little bit about Fulton v. Philly and how an outcome in that case might impact how we litigate cases uh, post-Bostock? Yes. Um, so let me do it this way. The Bostock ruling, you know, big, massive win for the LGBTQ movement. There are two caveats that the court um, has in, in the Bostock ruling. Um, one is just says, well, you know what? There are all these questions about how does this apply? How does this ruling about sex discrimination covers anti-trans discrimination? How does it apply in the context of transgender people and sex specific rules like restrooms, uh, locker rooms, sports teams, dress codes? And the court just says, you know what? This case doesn't have anything to do with that. We'll get to that down the road. So that was one caveat they said, and that's one whole set of, of questions and litigation that's that's going on, a bunch of which has we've made some progress on over the last year. But the other caveat gets us to Fulton, because the other caveat is about religious exemptions. And the court says, um, you know, hey, we read there were there, some of the parties were raising this question, and some of the friends of the court briefs that were filed raised this question about, well, what about doesn't this intrude on religious liberty if we're forcing um, uh, if we're all of a sudden saying that uh, LGBTQ people are protected from discrimination, um, uh, shouldn't there be some religious religious exemptions here? And the court just says, this case um, doesn't involve any of those questions. And so we'll get to those questions down the down the road. Um, so basically saying, we're not saying there are will be exemptions and we're not saying there won't be exemptions. And Fulton is one of the contexts um, uh, where exemptions have been asserted, claimed by uh, people uh, uh, who are facing the application of a non-discrimination rule, an LGBTQ non-discrimination rule. And they wanna say, you know what, that rule shouldn't apply to me. And it shouldn't apply to me because I have a constitutional right um, of free exercise of religion or free exercise, uh, uh, the exercise of free speech, that one or the other of those two First Amendment rights gives me the privilege of, um, of violating the non-discrimination law, of discriminating, um, uh, despite that law. And so that's the, that's the, the caveat and the set, the set of issues that um, are basically teed up by Bostock. So Bostock says, yes, you're covered by non-discrimination, and we'll tell you in, in a year or two or three what we think about uh, various religious exemptions from that non-discrimination ruling. You've been very good about talking about um, how we can have non-discrimination laws and how we can have the freedom of religion and how these two things can coexist and how we can make arguments that are broadly accepted by the wider public that these two things can operate in the same sphere. And we were making these arguments around Masterpiece Cake Shop. Can you talk a little bit about how you make the case to somebody who you know, is deeply religious but also cares about LGBT equality, about how these can coexist and how potentially uh, Fulton is even scarier than what was at stake in Masterpiece? 
Absolutely. So look, the place to start um, is just with the, the recognition that the freedom of religion is really important. Um, it's important uh, to our culture and our society. Um, you know, there are so many people of faith in, in this country um, and that their freedom of religion, everyone's freedom of religion, um, is uh, justifiably, appropriately, necessarily protected by the Constitution. Um, and so we should embrace that. But the question here is, um, okay, well, what's the scope of that religious liberty? Um, and the, the concern here is that when the, 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 the right that people are claiming in a series of cases, including Fulton and Masterpiece Cake Shop, is a right to harm third parties. Basically to say, you know what, I'm gonna, it's because of my religious belief, I am going to uh, turn you away from government services, or I'm going to turn you away from a business that is otherwise open to the public. And as a society, we have said, well, look, when the government provides services to the public, it should be providing the services to all of the public. And when a business takes advantage of the fact of, of, of opening itself to the, the wider society, not just selling cookies to my friend network, but selling cookies on the public street um, to anyone who walks by, that, that part of the deal is you open it up to everybody. We have had, um, this country has sort of found the balance between civil rights and religious freedom. And it said, you know, religious freedom is absolutely protected and, it's, and the government has to have a really good reason for intruding on it. But when that religious freedom is invoked as a reason to intrude upon the rights of others, that is a really good reason to, um, to intrude upon it. And, and that's the, where the religious liberty ends. And the, the challenge for us as a movement going forward is, okay, are we going to be able to convince the courts and legislatures, because religious exemptions show up in both contexts, um, that those the same rules that the society has adopted in, the context, in terms of how religious exemptions do and don't work um, in the context of race, and more broadly in the context of sex, because um, that's been raised in that context as well a bunch, are those rules going to apply to LGBTQ people? Or is, is there going to be a different set of rules that apply to LGBTQ people and all of a sudden religious exemptions uh, are allowed when we're talking about discrimination against LGBTQ people, even though they would be rejected in the context of race or in the context of discrimination against women or men? That's such an important point as we talk about the Bostock ruling and its significance and all of the cases that are being litigated now to extend that holding to other areas of federal law. You worry that there is the potential for Fulton v. Philly to undermine all of that hard work. I mean, I think about Amy Stevens and Basically, her employer in that case was saying, I'm firing you and I'm not recognizing your gender identity because I believe that sex is biological and established by God. Um, so a religious reason to discriminate against someone. So, you know, what could happen if we get a ruling in the Fulton case that totally blows a hole in the significant win we've achieved in Bostock. Well, that, that is very much um, a, a risk here. Um, and it, we could get a ruling in Fulton that goes that far. Um, it, we could get a ruling that, that doesn't go as far. Um, but but the, 
You're totally right, Eric. The, the danger of the religious exemptions is that it basically dilutes and undermines the civil rights laws that, that now apply to us um, in so many different contexts under federal law. Um, and, uh, and this is not a, you know, a minor intrusion upon that, uh, those protections, right? This is not just, um, you know, a little bit of, ish, uh, of, sort of people on the edges. Um, and, you know, we just need to be, you know, accommodating and nice to folks uh, and, and they'll go away. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, the one context where religious exemptions have been accepted by the courts um, and by legislatures again and again and again and again is in the reproductive freedom context. Um, so there's a constitutional right to abortion created in, in 1973. And within the year, Congress is, is starting to pass, relig create religious exemptions from that right um, uh, in various different contexts. And from the 70s until today, um, uh, at the federal level, but also again and again and again in the states, there are more and more and more religious exemptions um, that uh, give uh, institutions, religiously affiliated institutions, but also individuals um, with uh, religiously based objections to abortion care, the ability just to say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything related to that. I'm not going to, you know, uh, schedule an appointment for someone. I don't do any, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I'm a, a, an administrative assistant in a hospital. I don't want to schedule the people um, for abortions. And that field is so saturated with religious exemptions um, that it's one of the ways that the abortion right is being undermined in very significant ways, both legally in terms of how realistic is it that people can actually get the care they need, but also culturally by repeatedly reinforcing the idea that this right is really an illegitimate right, a right that shouldn't exist, a right that doesn't have the same sort of strength and fullness that other constitutionally protected rights have. And that is precisely what opponents of LGBTQ rights are trying to do to LGBTQ rights through the religious exemptions uh, lens, both to create, to carve out a world where our equality uh, is something they don't have to worry about um, and to help undermine the sort of legitimacy of the, the civil rights that we have um, uh, created by uh, uh, building out this cultural idea that um, there are really um, well-founded um, uh, objections to LGBTQ equality that are constitutionally significant. And that puts us in, in our equality and our lives in a different category from uh, a bunch of other folks in, in the world. You know, and, and they name this in their own literature. This is not just me coming up with you know, crazy conspiracy theories. That's exactly what they are trying to do and what I think it, they are at risk of actually doing. Wow. That's well put. And again, it, it shows how, how clear you're able to make the argument when you associate it to other civil rights issues. And then when you associate it to the abortion context mm -hmm. and the way that religious exemptions have kind of played out in the courts uh, in, those, in those areas. I'm wondering if we could go to the good news again and talk a little bit about how Bostock has been. I mean, you're, you started off the conversation by talking about a more hostile federal judiciary. Are you finding in the litigation that you're bringing, trying to expand Bostock to other contexts that federal courts are reading the decision, are applying its holding in the way that, that 
that you would expect it to be uh, applied? Yeah. So, well, so far, um, we've, you know, we, the movement, um, have done very well. Um, actually, better than, quite frankly, than, than I thought we might do in terms of getting a range of different courts to recognize um, the protections that Bostock uh, provides, not just in the context of employment, but in other contexts, education, housing, and healthcare. And also, um, uh, in, in many of those same cases, applying um, the, the, the reasoning of Bostock to the context of trans folks and sex-specific rules like um, restrooms, locker rooms, and, um, and sports teams. So just to give you a couple of examples, uh, two federal appeals courts, the 11th Circuit um, in a case that uh, Landa brought Adams and the Fourth Circuit in the case that the ACLU brought uh, Gavin Grimm's case, have ruled that um, under Bostock, the Title IX of the Civil Rights Act um, covers anti-trans discrimination, um, and not just anti-trans discrimination in general, but anti-trans discrimination in the context of, of uh, barring trans folks from the restrooms that match their gender identity. And so that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely the right decision. Um, these are, um, you know, among the better uh, uh, federal appeals courts um, in the country at the moment. Um, but also, like it is, the, there are now three federal appeals courts: the the fourth, the eleventh, and the seventh, um, that have addressed this question about uh, kicking trans uh, kids out of restrooms, um, and they've all come out the right way. Um, and so, uh, there's a cert petition pending in, in Gavin Grimm's case by the school district, by the bad guys, and um, we'll see what the court does. But at the moment, we're doing pretty well in that front. Um, the other place we've had success so far is in the sports context. Folks are probably aware that um, there is a, a just a slew of, of proposed bills in the state legislatures this year um, that attack trans people, both in the context of sports, um, barring trans, many of them barring trans women from uh, a compete, uh, participating in um, uh, girls and women's sports teams, um, and some of them about healthcare access. And um, uh, last year, in the spring of 2020, just as the um, epidemic, the, the pandemic was closing um, all the other state legislatures down, the Idaho legislature, and it's one of its last gasps before closing down, um, decided that the, the real, the urgency, the, the urgent problem it needed to address was uh, trans girls in sports. And so they barred um, trans women and girls from sports, even though they could identify no trans women in the entire state that had even asked to uh, participate on girls and women's teams. So we sued on behalf of some uh, of a trans uh, a, a woman athlete that we found. Um, and uh, we got a preliminary injunction from um, a, uh, you know, from a, a federal district judge in Idaho, which is not a place you go looking for lefties. Right. So, um, and, uh, and just an amazingly comprehensive, smart, um, uh, opinion from that judge. In that case, that issue, uh, that preliminary injunction is now on appeal before the uh, Ninth Circuit. It'll be argued in the beginning of May. Uh, and there, uh, the last sort of sort of context in which um, our movement has had some really uh, uh, good results in the wake of Bostock is in the context of healthcare access. Um, the Trump administration um, issued um, some healthcare regulations. Actually, the the Friday before Bostock came out, the, the Monday Friday before the Monday in which Bostock came out, um, and several uh, organizations sued 
because th those those regulations basically took uh, healthcare protections, uh, non-discrimination protections for trans people away and took, took them out of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. At least two different federal district judges have um, enjoined those uh, those regulations, including in the context of healthcare access for trans folks. And I think most of those rulings came out in August of last summer. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Just a couple of months after Bostock and, and case after case after case after case is ruling for the trans plaintiffs. Um, the pace has slowed down since then. Uh, and I'm, it's not clear to me what the Supreme Court does with these questions when and if they get there. But um, I think we are just hoping for some time, some time before the issues get back to the Supreme Court. Is that the Sorry, Supreme Court calling? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. James, um, it sounds like you've got a landline there. Uh, yeah, no, it's just the old fashioned ringer on my, on my phone. <laughs> so um, it, it's not clear to me what the Supreme Court is gonna do when, it, when, it, when, it, when and if it gets to these questions. We're hoping for to just to have the court wait a little bit before it gets to these questions. Because look, the, uh, the country is learning a lot about uh, trans people. Um, and uh, the country is on this very steep and important learning curve. And we collectively need time for that learning to happen, um, for, for the, the country to get, get more com comfortable, for the courts to get more comfortable. Um, because look, we, we know, that our movement knows this. Um, we didn't win the freedom to marry because, you know, in, in, two, in 2015, because the lawyers had come up with new arguments, um, right? If you compare the, the, the arguments in the briefs in Obergefell um, in 2015 that won us the freedom to marry, they're basically the same arguments that were in the briefs in 1972 before the United States Supreme Court when the first um, uh, uh, freedom to marry case was dismissed for want of a, federal, a, a substantial federal question. Um, and so what changed in the interim is the country's understanding of who uh, LGB people are. And we've got all the right legal arguments in all these cases about trans folks. What we need is the cultural transformation of the, the understanding of, the, of who trans and non-binary people are, of the common humanity of these folks. Because once you get there to that mindset, the legal arguments are easy. Um, and so little time on slowing some of this stuff down um, I think can help us. That's a great way to put it. And um, you said that we, at the start of this program, that we might get used to losing in federal court uh, for, for the foreseeable future until we can change the composition of the federal judiciary. Um, do, are you hoping or planning to, to focus on state court wins or legislative wins or <laughs> a defensive strategy to try to hold back any kind of bad uh, badness? Well, we are, I mean, let me, let me sort of split things in, in, in two sort of two areas. I think that, um, you know, I'm not convinced that we're, we're necessarily going to lose on the trans rights issues. Um, I'm actually hopeful that we can, uh, with, with the sort of um, the, the learning um, and the evolution that the country is doing, including the courts, that we can get to a place where um, conservative courts, even potentially the Supreme Court, can get its head around um, 
the reality of trans existence um, and start applying the civil rights laws to in ways that will protect trans folks. I'm hopeful about that. Um, the place that I'm concerned is, is much more around the religious exemptions issues because um, this is not a, a, a phenomenon that's happening just in the LGBTQ context. The, the current US Supreme Court um, ha has um, embraced an understanding of the free exercise of religion that is much broader uh, than earlier courts did. And so this religious revolution in the courts um, is you know, gonna have, I fear, significant consequences for LGBTQ folks. I think it's gonna have broader consequences as well. Um, and you know, one example of that is, is Fulton itself. I mean, Ful so Fulton's about, um, uh, one way of, of talking about Fulton is it's about whether uh, private agencies that uh, place kids for in foster care um, uh, have to follow the city's non-discrimination rule that said they can't discriminate based on, among other things, sexual orientation. Um, that's a way of thinking about it that's like Masterpiece Cake Shop. It's basically, this is a foster care agency and it's just like the bakery and they have to follow the city's rules or the state's rules. But, but what's actually going on in Fulton is slightly different. The city of Philadelphia, you know, has kids in its care. The kids are wards of the city and the city is required to find families for these kids, um, to, to take care of these kids. And so the city could do that work itself, but instead it hires contractors to do the city's work to go evaluate pr prospective foster families and certify them as appropriate or not. And the city should, by rights, should be in charge of deciding how it wants its own work done when it hires a, a third party instead of its own employees to do that work. But, but the, the religiously affiliated agencies he, in Fulton are saying to the Supreme Court, we have a constitutional right to do the city's work our own way, regardless of what the, what the city, how the city wants us to do it because of our religious uh, views. If that's true in, in this government services context, I don't know why it wouldn't be true in every other government services context, which all of a sudden means the government loses control over the work that it hires other people to do. So that, so this is a, this, sort of, you know, a revolution in how uh, sweeping the free, free exercise of, of religion right is according to the current court um, stands to do you know, clearly harm to LGBTQ folks, harm to every other uh, community protected by civil rights laws, but also harm just even to the government's ability to control the work it wants to do. Um, the consequences are just enormous. Wow, uh, that was scary. Um, do you have a good, like, uh, what could happen in Fulton if we get a, a good, maybe something, given the conservative makeup, maybe not a full win, but something that's limited? Look, here's my my hope. When the cert petition was filed in, in Fulton, I was kind of like, uh, this, is, this is a bad strategic move for them, for the other side, for their agenda, because this case is so out there. For the very reason I just explained, this this it, this isn't about just like oh government regulating private business. Um, this is government regulating itself, and they've they've bitten off too much. There's there's no way they win this case. Hmm. And now I'm, after oral argument, I'm not so sure. But the 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 thing that would be a good quote win for us would be something that says um, 
look, this is, this is a bridge too far because you're saying that this religious freedom right controls the government's um, you know, uh, operation of its own work. And it doesn't mean that, even if it might mean some other things, but we'll figure that out in another case. So that would be live to you know, win and live to fight another day. Um, and quite frankly, if Justice Ginsburg um, were still alive, I think we would win that way because I, I think that um, Chief Justice Roberts, which, who would, would have been the swing vote, um, was concerned. I think he, he said things at oral argument that suggested that he was concerned about the government contractor context. As it is with Justice Barrett on the court, I think it's hard, hard to see how we get to that result. Uh, I'm, ex I'm you know, uh, unfortunately expecting some kind of loss. Um, it could be a very broad loss, um, which would say that, um, yes, the, 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 the free exercise of religion means that the government can't, even the government can't control the way it um, uh, wants its work done. And if, if that's true, I think all of stuff like masterpiece context is, is likely controlled as well. Um, but it, it could be that they come up with some way that is really just tailored to um, the plaintiff here is the is Catholic Social Services, a, a private um, religiously affiliated um, child welfare agency in, in Philadelphia that was operating in the, um, in the sort of child welfare space, the foster care and adoption space for decades prior to government taking over that function. And part of their argument is like, oh, well, you know, we used to do this for a long time and you guys have tried to kick us out of that space. But really, because we've done this for a long time and it, because it's part of our religious calling, we should be able to have this extra leeway. And it could be that they create some ruling that is along those lines that then wouldn't necessarily apply to other contexts like masterpiece and employment and healthcare access and all these other contexts where there are other, where there are other questions in other cases pending. So, but they would be creating um, brand new doctrine out of whole cloth. And they can do that. That's one of the things that the court does, but, but it's hard to, in one, in one sense, it's hard to sort of predict what they're gonna do because there really aren't um, building blocks that I can see to get them there. Um, I can just see the th think that they like, well, let's, let's, let's construct something that will address this situation. And that may very well be what we see. Well, James, this has been fascinating. And I wonder if in closing, you could give us, I remember being at Lavender Law one year and it was just after Windsor and you talked about, you gave a speech there um, about how religious exemptions were going to be the next thing that we were fighting. You know, we all sat up at the time and just started to take notice. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I'm wondering 10 years down the line where you see, you know, you're on this podcast 10 years from now, who knows? <laughs> what What do you think we're going to be talking about? Or where do you, you know, you can answer this either from a place of hope or of reality, but 10 years, what are the LGBT rights battles in court going to look like? Let me start not in court, but just in, in the culture. Look, I think that the country is going to um, like is is going to continue on this journey of of learning and discovery vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, trans and non-binary folks. Um, I think you know the the journey on uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people is going to continue, but um, we're doing pretty well, and the country's doing pretty well on, on these issues. Uh, and, and it's the, in the with trans and non-binary folks where they're 
is still so much energy on the other side um, and so much learning to happen uh, for much of the country. I think that's going to continue. Um, and I think that's going to continue whether we win or lose the trans-related cases. Um, and I think that not, not to say that the cases and all that litigation is, is irrelevant. I think it's part of how we shape and push the conversation in the country. Um, but I also think that we're going to continue to make progress with the country, even if the courts slow us down on the trans side of things. On the religious exemption side of things, the, the, the concern is that our opponents are really trying to use the Constitution to slow us down and to prevent future progress. Because the, here's the here's this this really scary thing about the exemption stuff. Um, if they get exemptions through a bill in Congress, well, we can with a new Congress we can change that that law, right? If they get exemptions um, through a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that the Constitution requires this exemption, only the Supreme Court can change that. Um, and that's, so, so the exemption fights that we're in the midst of are things that we, you know, if we lose, we can't get around them unless the court changes them. And our movement has been through situations where we had to get the court to change things, and we've done that, but that usually takes a long, long time. And so I look ahead and I see progress on trans rights, um, you know, either with or despite the courts. I see some potentially scary restrictions on uh, on civil rights laws for LGBTQ people based on this religious ex exemption stuff, and um, I think that that's you know we, that we will probably be um, fighting those issues um, for a good long time. Uh, and, and, but I also think that this that I said earlier, like we've been on a winning streak, um, and you know winning is obviously a whole lot more fun than losing, um, but defense is something that our movement has got to get comfortable with. Um, we are in a defensive posture, especially on the religious exemptions work, but defense can make a difference. And I'm not saying we can win and overturn all, all these exemptions if we just get involved and fight them. Uh, but we need to get involved in these cases. Many of these cases that are advancing religious exemptions, they're brought by uh, people on the other side. They're not our cases that they're that the bad guys are getting into. They're the bad guys' cases, um, and we're getting into. Fulton is one of them. It was brought by the, the uh, religiously affiliated uh, foster care agency with counsel from an activist organization against the city of Philadelphia, and we represented um, uh, two different groups that are interested in uh, you know, an LGBTQ parents group and, and, a, and a group of lawyers representing the kids in the foster care system because we needed to get into it to, so that there was an LGBTQ voice or voices that could help inf uh, inform the court about what's really at stake. We need to continue doing that work. And because it's it's damage control um, and it's not, it's not the same exciting, uh, shiny object kind of like, oh, this is gonna be great. We're gonna win new rights. This is about damage control, but boy, is it important. And we, our community needs to understand that this is part of where the fight is today. Um, and these are efforts, uh, fights to invest in and to pay attention to and to celebrate when we, uh, you know, have a, you know, if it's a loss, if it's a small, loss, you know, narrow loss, not a broad loss, that's a win. And that makes a difference in the lives of people in our community. Um, and it's important work. Wow. What a great way to end this. James, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Great. It has been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Eric.
And as usual, thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on Spotify, on iTunes. Please give us five stars and leave us a comment. It's how other people learn all about us. We are going to be back next week with our Law Notes episode of the podcast with Art Leonard. Take care. <laughs>